Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 20th, 2020. I hope everybody's staying safe out there. I hope you're abiding by the containment procedures and measures to try and get rid of this virus. And I hope anybody who has contracted it, if you're out there listening, uh, that you're resting and recovering. Um, Obviously, our best wishes go out to anyone in that situation and to anyone, uh, certainly, who is out there working, keeping society together uh, at risk to themselves. You have our thanks and hopes that you uh, make it through this unscathed and and you and your loved ones. I need to start every episode that way, or either start or end every episode that way, I guess, uh, right now. But uh, with that said, uh, I'm very excited today. We're going to have an interview for you guys uh, that is not really about the coronavirus uh, for a change. All of our interviews lately have been uh, about something to do with pandemics or to do with this uh, virus, and we will be having more of those uh, to come. Uh, but today's interview, uh, I'm going to be joined uh, in a few minutes by Michael Brooks, uh, returning guest Michael Brooks, and somebody whose show I've been on several times. Uh, Michael, if you don't know, is kind of uh, uh, got a lot of things going on. It's one of the things that I'm uh, impressed uh, with him uh, about he's always got a lot of stuff going on he's the host of the michael brooks show uh, he's the co-host of the majority report with sam cedar uh, he has a new program on jacobin called weekends uh, with anna kasparian uh, and michael brooks uh, so you can check him out there uh, and he also the reason that uh, we're talking i'm talking with him today and you're listening uh, is that he's got a new book coming out this week It's called Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. Uh, You can find it uh, wherever you buy your books or your e-books. I'll post a link in the show description. Uh, And it's basically a a look at uh, the intellectual dark web. This is not something that we typically cover (laughs) on this podcast, Uh, but it is uh, important, I think, uh, from... The perspective of, you know, those of us who are uh, talking about issues, political issues on the left, to understand the intellectual dark web because they are, you know, the new kind of variety of right-wing online folks. Uh, And Michael's written a book that I think covers uh, three of the most important figures in this movement and touches on kind of the movement more broadly. But he talks about uh, Sam Harris Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, uh, and has some things to say. I think some some important things to say about uh, how the left can counter the message that's coming out from uh, from this group of people who portray themselves as sort of the the thoughtful, reasonable uh, conservative, you know, group of conservatives, even though they have some some really wild (laughs) really wild and crazy ideas uh we'll get into that uh and we'll talk about some of these characters uh and i'll i'll ask michael to talk about you know his kind of uh perspective i guess on 
where the left, broadly speaking, is in terms of its uh, response to this movement and, and what needs to change or, uh, you know, what people need to, to bear in mind as we kind of try to message uh counter message the uh the 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 what's coming out of this movement which is a popular uh movement i mean you know there's a lot of jordan peterson's very popular guy uh sam harris is very well known respected for some reason guy uh so this is you know these are uh, major figures uh you know ben shapiro is what he is i guess but he's got a big following for reasons i can't understand uh so it's important to to kind of be familiar with who these people are and what they're saying uh and michael's got some thoughts about uh, how to counter that message so uh, we will get into that and we'll kind of delve into the zany cast of characters that he has going on in this book uh it's a little bit different content for us but i think uh, uh you'll enjoy it and i definitely recommend I've, I've read michael's book i definitely recommend it if you're interested in this sort of stuff and if you're interested in you know messaging from the left and uh you're the kind of person who goes online and kind of gets angry at uh, Jordan Peterson or can't understand why people, uh, you know, uh, gravitate toward these folks, uh, I would definitely recommend picking, picking up the book and, uh, giving it a read. Uh, so with that said, uh, let me get Michael on the line here and we'll get started with the interview. I am joined, as I said in the introduction, by Michael Brooks, host of the Michael Brooks Show, uh, co-host of the Majority Report with Sam Cedar, uh, co-host of Weekends, uh, on Jacobin. Uh, and the author of a brand new book, which is just coming out this week, Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. Uh, Michael, a returning guest, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Derek, it's always a lot of fun to talk to you, man. It's uh, great having you on TMBS. Great to be on your show. So the book kind of takes a look at the intellectual dark web uh and this cast of characters that's involved who are involved in it uh sam harris jordan peterson uh an assortment of other uh folks and as i was reading it and i'm getting ready for this interview i was thinking like you know my wife is gonna listen to this probably this episode probably uh and i don't think she has any idea who the intellectual dark web are like what it is uh so i thought maybe we could start there uh for people who who aren't familiar with them, uh, tell us, you know, what the intellectual dark web is and why is it so important? Well, first of all, I want to give myself props for not doing the, uh, the Borat voice. Um, but, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> My immaturity is not being helped by quarantine. Uh, well, the the intellectual dark web was really had its heyday a couple years ago. I mean, they're, they're, they're way less relevant at the moment, but it in thankfully my book is structured in such a way that the bigger argument about the kind of left we're trying to build uh, and um, you know much more appealing, much more dynamic and cosmopolitan one, uh, and also I think the kind of arguments that you hear in the intellectual dark web are going to continue to be recycled. Uh, even as the scene changes. But basically, this is a group of guys. They're certainly still around, uh, but their big kind of cultural cachet moment was in 2018, uh, although they certainly still have big followings. They were online, uh, cast of characters that include the Weinstein brothers, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, uh, Ben Shapiro, and others. And I would say 
inside this group, they made a lot of hay out of the fact that they didn't necessarily all see eye to eye on this or that political issue. But in the main, uh, this is a group of guys who are very concerned about, um, you know, you know, very familiar kind of conservative gripes, political correctness run amok, uh, various defenses of capitalism uh, are actually very important to all of their projects. Uh, and also they're all about, um, and this is a sort of thing to me that I think really gets to the kind of fundamental division in politics and not just, you know, against right versus left and the kind of very conventional you know, basically pretty silly Democratic and Republican sense, but really in a broader sense of if you have a certain more, you know, I don't know, I mean, I guess let's just say socialistic politics that really wants to give people in general a lot more democracy and democracy across all areas of their lives, including the economic ones, versus people who uh, could identify more on the quote unquote political center or right, who really take a lot of hierarchies is kind of given, you know, that there's there's disparate outcomes and political social hierarchies are really because, you know, they're they're not these are not the products of history or economics. They're the products of, you know, natural orders, whether scientific or otherwise. I, as I say in the book, I think a lot of these guys either mythologize or naturalize difference. So I think that, you know, what what they end you know, the last thing I'll say is that in the space that I'm in, and, and I think in the last couple of years, in a way, uh, the sort of world of podcasts and YouTube and stuff has gotten a less insular as more and more people have turned to those platforms, which is in some ways a great thing, in some ways, probably not a, not a tremendous thing. But these guys, uh, you know, particularly when I was contracted to write the book, they were a conduit. Uh, for a lot of young people online, I would say kind of basically coming to some sort of anti-left position uh, in various ways. Uh, I think I'll just tick off, I think, the self-help dimension that you see with some of them, particularly Peterson, obviously, is really important. And I also think that uh, they exploited a lot of really easy to correct for, uh, but persistent massive weaknesses in a sort of liberal left um, in order to build a following. I, I mean, I, I hope that, uh, I hope that does some decent job of, uh, explaining to your wife, Derek. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll let you know after she uh, listens to the interview. Uh, but, uh, as we get into, uh, talking about these guys, it strikes me, uh, that there are two sort of uh, mother loads, or there's two sort of uh, kind of root uh, th- events that sort of co- coalesced uh, or caused this community to coalesce. Uh, one of them uh, is the uh, the rise of the kind of the new atheist movement in the early 2000s with uh, Harris. You know, this is what he was involved in, and Richard Dawkins, and uh, you know, they kind of had created this this whole. Uh, kind of challenging the uh, saying the things that nobody's allowed to say and like challenging the conventional wisdom and uh, sort of the 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 powers that be in society that's where the, the sort of comes from and the second thing is the the bell curve Charles Murray's book 
book, uh, which was rightfully criticized for being, you know, hot garbage, uh, but gave these guys a sense of like, uh, you know, leftists are running amok. They're like trying to tell you what you can and can't say. Uh, and we have to be the ones that kind of bravely stand up for free speech and uh, for for ta- speaking the the difficult truths uh i wonder if that's your sense that these are this sort of uh, two formative events and and like how this this whole thing uh kind of developed yeah well you have to add jordan peterson and i think jordan peterson you know sam harrison jordan peterson in some ways are kind of the two poles uh and sam harris is you know this sort of you know, this guy with this very, very, very kind of embarrassingly narrow view of the world that he thinks kind of, you know, answers everything. Uh, and then Peterson is kind of a mystic in a way. Um, and that's kind of another funny sort of convergence of this that, you know, part of the origins of it do go back to kind of George W. Bush era, sort of like, Haha, you know, religious books are stupid, you know, particularly the Quran, uh, and then has sort of mer- merged with, and, and you know, they, they certainly have debates and arguments. It's not that Harris has changed his views, but it is kind of funny that, and then when you, that you have the sort of mysticism of Peterson, and then you have, you know, just you know, Ben Shapiro, obviously just a right wing talker and, you know, literal religious fundamentalist uh, as far as I can tell. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, that's a big part of it. The convergence between all of them is some type of freak out about PC culture. You can't say stuff anymore, uh, this sort of thing. Um, and then I think, you know, there's a couple of bigger uh, lessons from that, and one is as an is is you know to be to be blunt. As much as I think the reaction of these characters uh, to this stuff um, and how they've used it, and by the way, also how they don't exactly you know they don't embody some kind of ethos of serious inquiry and wide intellectual conversation themselves, right? Like they're you know constantly freaking out and whining. I think Peterson even sued somebody once, you know, and again, not for like making up a story or something, just, you know, for, for criticizing, I, I'll have to, to double check that. But I mean, you know, and, and Sam Harris is kind of, you know, known almost as like a meme for, you know, everything is out of context and, you know, and so on and so forth. So, uh, but I think that they were able to come up in a cultural moment where it really did seem like there was a certain faction of sort of social media campus left, which basically could only hector and moralize and try to, you know, in in some ways, you know, shut down conversation because it didn't have the confidence to take on actually really shaky arguments. And I, you know... I obviously don't agree with the IDW critique of it, but I think they were able to exploit a lot of obvious weaknesses there. Um, you know, I'll just actually run it forward to today. I mean, I think we can start sort of disturbingly see in some ways some similar dynamics right now in the kind of China conversation where you have it with much higher, much more serious stakes. But, you know, a contingent of people with very powerful media platforms really trying to instigate an enormous amount of fear mongering and cold war resetting or new cold war setting with China 
incredibly dangerous, ahistorical, not strategic, and, you know, any number of things. And we need to have a real serious response to it, particularly as in some ways it's a bipartisan project. But, you know, you do see a contingent of, you know, the sort of online kind of left that doesn't, that literally, you know, they don't, they can't even discuss geo. They, the only move they know is how to call something racist. And it doesn't work. You know, it just isn't, a, you know, it just isn't a coherent answer to the world, especially when inside the garbage are going to be things that people find either appealing or make too intuitive sense to them. The, the bell curve was a really great example, though, of, of how these dynamics play out, because, of course, Sam Harris would, uh, you know, fixate on Charles Murray, think he was a, you know, a victim of a politically correct witch hunt. And, you know, it, it shows you a lot of things, because, sure, there was pushback against Charles Murray. And, you know, I'm sure there's some people to the extent they know who he is, probably identify him as, as, a, as a bigot. And I certainly do. Uh, but, you know, and this is very in keeping with their sort of self-victimization and whining. You know, this guy, yeah, like what a victim. The book was, you know, <laughs> front cover of the New Republic. It was reviewed respectfully all over the place. Uh, it was, you know, in some respects, it was more of a sort of testament that you could write not only a racist book in the 1990s, but actually one. Phrenology. That, I mean, you can. Yeah, literally a phrenology book. And then. Of course, that you also, and this is what, you know, again, I, you know, of course, Harris really didn't, you know, I don't think, you know, he was really into leaning into how unfairly this hugely massively compensated scholar uh, and policy activist is, you know, was supposedly victimized, even as he's, you know, still is on Bill Maher and whatever else. But the, uh, the, the point of the bell curve, actually, and it's funny because you can really see like how much more intelligent and sinister a Charles Murray is in some ways. The whole point of the bell curve and the racism is subsumed inside it is to basically say that all income inequality in the current economy is just going to essentially be attributable to intelligence <laughs> so that whether we're explaining it on, you know, primarily on race lines, but also along any other line of you know, lower education or whatever else. We just have to accept that a bunch of people are dumb and nothing can be done about it. And the real point of the book was to start with part of that 80s and 90s wave of slashing the already meager social safety net. And it's kind of, in a way, it's sort of funny because Harris being the, you know, basically politically illiterate, you know, uh, sort of, and then, and then identifying in his own identity politics, basically with Charles Murray is, you know, oh, man, this guy's out here telling hard truths and he's a victim, uh, you know, and then, of course, with Harris's typical massive arrogance, thinking that he has, you know, a greater grasp on this field than, you know, any number of specialists. Right. Uh, but in the in this whole process, he, you know, sort of, you know, he 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 didn't even necessarily see um, the bigger point of the book. And I and I think what was funny was in the debate with Ezra Klein, Ezra Klein sort of, you know, pointed this out to him. And, you know, Harris did his usual kind of whiny sort of like, I agree, you know, I'm a Democrat. But, you know, the point is that you can't say black people are stupid anymore. And that's dangerous. You know, the book is structured in three main parts uh, and you get into uh, part. The first part is on Sam Harris and then you get into talking about Jordan Peterson uh, and then you talk about Ben Shapiro and the the third part, sort of, you know, the three 
main figures of the the IDW. And I, I have to confess here, uh, like this is not a group of people that I, I uh, familiarize myself with with uh, regularly. Like if I hear Jordan Peterson. Uh, I like turn around and walk in the other direction. Uh, but uh, Sam Harris, I did want to get into with you because he's the one that I'm sort of uh, the most familiar with. Uh, and he's he's the one that sort of stands out to me because I read uh, The End of Faith, which was his first kind of, you know, book that, that uh, you know, got a wide audience. And if, for me at, at that time, he published it in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, I was somebody who was kind of emerging from uh, a, a Catholic upbringing, not a strict Catholic upbringing or anything like that, uh, but I had grown up Catholic and I, I had come to have, you know, a lot of uh, issues with the church, a lot of issues that then, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, sort of a lot of, a lot of issues with religion uh, in general. And, you know, to read The End of Faith and to, to get kind of Sam Harris's uh, you know, writing about religion, it was like, wow, I've never seen anybody write, you know, so forcefully about uh, the issues that they have with religion. This is really cool. Like, this is this is wild. And the book sort of takes you, and this is kind of, I think, the hook for people who are in that mindset, as I was at that age. Uh, it sort of takes you uh, on a journey, and you, you start out with, and he sort of walks you through his critique of religion and all the kind of uh, all these different religions. You know, it's not I'm not singling anyone out. Uh, and and you, you but by the time you get to the end of the book, you're reading basically a screed against Islam. Um, but you don't realize you kind of don't realize that you're doing it. Uh, you quote in the, the book, the, the sort of motherload passage where he hypothetically talks about how we may just, uh, you know, have to consider the possibility of nuking the Islamic world and killing tens of millions of people uh and in out of context when you lift it out of context it's horrifying to read uh but in context it it, it he kind of primes you to kind of get, get through that and not necessarily agree with it but not be uh startled by how horrifying it is and there's sort of a style that he uses to to make these arguments and he, this is the most egregious example but it's not the only one and i wonder if you could kind of talk about uh the sort of way that sam harris kind of uh puts these arguments together these theoretical horrifying arguments yeah i mean I I think the the problem, though, and maybe this is just the difference of perspective in some ways that and I'll confess, I didn't grow up in a religious fundamentalist household. And I think if I did, I would have a lot more that, that type of writing, that type of kind of 2005 sort of, you know, the Bible's actually stupid, man. You know, it would have done a lot more for me, you know. But so, you know, I'll, I'll confess that. But I, I think it does start with the general approach to religion that he stakes out where you if you pretty much right out of the gate say you know all kind of interpretive strategies for these religions and and the textual tradition and competing interpretations and whatever else it's all bullshit these are all just you know ancient mumbo jumbo texts that lead people to believe things that are wrong. And then when they believe things that are wrong, that that has social consequences, you know, that just isn't how these things work. I mean, like them or hate them, right? Like we know that religion is this, this 
incredibly complex thing that operates in a million different ways in society um, from, you know, from people's spiritual lives to basic social functioning to kind of umbrellas for different types of political organizing. I, I don't even think that that's a, a value statement. That's just kind of a truth. And so you, you have this perspective that's already like, you know, okay, this guy seems pretty light on his history and on his anthropology and on his, you know, kind of everything else. And also to just sort of come away with a sort of deep dive into this stuff with basically like, well, it just isn't true. And when people don't believe right. things that aren't true, it's not good. I mean, okay, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, and then of course, when you deploy that with, especially in the context he's writing then, you know, of the sort of, of the George W. Bush war on terror era, uh, you then say, obviously, Islam is particularly bad. Not only should we not talk about geopolitics, the very act of talking about geopolitics is some type of moral evasion of the truth right. of where we're at. And, you know, what these guys do, and, and frankly, I mean, Hitchens, and Hitchens should deserve more criticism because he obviously knew a hell of a lot better, is you could always find some type of random, like, Ward Churchill type of whatever who would just say, like, make up that Al-Qaeda is really, like, no, they're, you know, this is some type of tool of anti-capitalism or something, and, you know, come up with some type of ludicrous interpretation of a group like that, or say, you know... And that's what these guys would make all of those kinds of arguments out to be. Whereas most of these arguments were, you know, well, maybe we do really need to rethink our relationship to Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is an example of the prime ideological funder of the types of groups that would morph into Al Qaeda or now ISIS. Uh, and so it, it, but I think what was really appealing about it for a lot of people and it's still appealing about it is it's, it's a sort of upmarket version of confirming your prejudices, you know, especially back when Harris was getting started, you know, what if you watch a speech by, you know, some Bush official and it's, you know, the axis of evil and with us or against us. And you have a little part of you that is sort of, you know, you're in your Cambridge apartment or something and you're like, oh, this just seems kind of stupid. But at the same time, you know, I love Israel and I do pretty much want to bomb all of these places. And, uh, you know, I do think they are a bunch of backward savages with no diversity and no different, you know, arguments amongst themselves, let alone legitimate grievances with us. Oh, well, this Sam Harris guy, I mean, he's, you know, this guy went to Stanford and he's, you know, he's talking about neuroscience and, you know, great. I mean, one of the main arguments that Harris makes in, in End of Faith is that uh, the real problem is with the moderates. Um, you know, and he sort of, there's this this desire to flatten everything out, to sort of oversimplify, to ignore uh, historical context, to ignore the fact that, uh, there are different interpretations of these religions. And for Harris, 
It's only the fundamentalist interpretation of the faith that matters. And if you're a moderate, you're just running cover for the fundamentalists, which we know. I mean, anybody who looks, you know, at at history or or looks at the present day even uh, understands that that's not true. It's the moderates that are on the, you know, sort of take the brunt of the the hostility from fundamentalists in most cases. Uh, And and they're the ones offering another interpretation of the faith. Uh, But for Harris, it's like there is no other interpretation but the fundamentalist one. Uh, ironically, you know, when he gets you, when he gets in this, is gets you in this mindset, and then drills down to focus on Islam, uh, his his position uh, is indistinguishable from somebody like Franklin Graham or you know some a Christian fundamentalist. His view of Islam is is essentially uh, the same as theirs. Um, oh, well, he had a thing several years ago where he. You know, and of course with him, I mean, I don't even remember what he did to do the sort of caveats and, you know, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm sure whatever it is, it's out of context. But he basically said something to the effect of, you know, Ben Carson is a nutcase, but I trust his instincts more than, you know, Noam Chomsky in terms of like how to deal with Muslims or deal with terrorism or whatever. And yeah, I think that it, it it's exactly how it worked. And I think it, it, it went to this extraordinarily literalist place where you could only, you could, yeah, you could only prop up, uh, you could only recognize fanatics as the actual carriers of the faith. And of course, in addition to everything you're saying about, you know, more moderate members, I mean, you and I even just know that it doesn't even work within its own terms of, you know, that there are, that there are, it's still staying in Islam. There's, there's extremely conservative fanatical sects that think it's profoundly religiously problematic to try to, uh, you know, attack the United States or establish a caliphate, right? Like people who almost relate to things more in the same way Jehovah's Witnesses do, almost like, hey, that is all God's will. And wherever you live, you pay your taxes and keep your head down. Even if you do think that, you know, only a small group of Sunnis is saved and everything else is haram or whatever, but there's no political consequence of that. And in fact, even acting politically is, uh, you know, a huge insult to God's will, essentially. So even inside those terms, it just didn't it just didn't work. And, And, you know, that is how I, you know, first encountered Harris, basically, was I, you know, I'll admit I just didn't. I didn't find the kind of atheism stuff particularly compelling, but I really was bothered by the international and Islam stuff. And, you know, it's it's funny because especially as my sort of some of my points of emphasis have kind of changed where, you know, my my point was never like and and is certainly now it, it wasn't to sort of create an alternative fantasy like. I don't think Islam is fundamentally a religion of peace. I don't think it's fundamentally a religion of anything, right? Like I don't, it's just not how I look at the world, you know, as a, it loops back to me for Adolf Reed's anti-essentialist stuff, which is a kind of interesting rebuke to the right-wing Sam Harris view, but also some of the kind of more like, you know, sort of counter liberal narratives about some things as well. It was just with Sam Harris that you're in a relative level, you're, facilitating people just being assholes to their neighbors, which is an innately terrible thing. And then more broadly, you're, you're teaching people to have 
you know, a kind of like 16 year old view of the world that you're going to confuse with like deep adult wisdom. And that just, you know, I, this is such a silly tangent, but I remember in, um, Goodwill hunting that scene where they realize that Matt Damon, you know, he's, he's like mopping the floors, but he's a genius because he goes on the chalkboard and solves some incredibly complicated problem. And I always kind of thought like the sort of Harris view of Islam would be, you know, like the same move, except they discover he just like fucked up the theorem by doing like basic geometry, <laughs> but just like still have the same swag. Like, yeah, right. It's like he's figured it out. Uh, this is where it gets frustrating uh, with Harris. There's sort of a studious refusal uh, to do any kind of historical analysis or, or to incorporate anything like that uh, into what what they're writing, it's all sort of done in the abstract. Uh, because and, you know, as you say, the 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 tradition uh, for much of Islamic history, there's been a strong uh, conservative tradition toward, um, if not outright asceticism, then at least kind of a quietism, like a political sort of uh, uh, or a refusal to engage in politics, to engage in something as worldly as politics, because it's inherently corrupting. Uh, It's much more prominent in modern times for us to see uh, kind of the coupling of a a sort of uh, conservative uh, fundamentalist view of Islam with political activity and, you know, in in extreme cases, violent activity. And if you were going to incorporate a historical analysis here, this is where you would say, hmm, you know, what about the modern world is different from the way the world was uh, a couple of hundred years ago that might cause this to happen? Uh, But for Harris, there's like no room for that kind of analysis at all his his uh view of islam basically uh you know closes in the middle of the seventh century um not unlike fundamentalists many fundamentalists really but uh you know sort of his understanding of it ends there and there's no kind of discussion about about what came after that the only thing that's current is opinion polls or um or uh you know um or these 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 fucking thought experiments, which are not even, you know, I talked with uh, my friend Ben Burgess for the book who teaches, you know, or, you know, he, he gave me some tips on this because, you know, I'm not, I, I, I did take some philosophy classes, but I'm not super up on these things. But like the point is, is that thought experiments are supposed to, you know, get you into a, a thorny place with a morality to kind of figure out. It's not to like, hype yourself up with like a sophisticated version of a 24 episode so you can write something that Frank Gaffney would write without all the bullshit. And that's also the other irony and always why I will admit, you know, I just always found him so, you know, deeply frustrating because you, and I look, I'm sure that my work has, has improved and I'm, I'm, I've no doubt that I've made mistakes and, you know, talking about anybody, but he is not, Ironically, for a guy who's constantly talking about how like religious moderates hide the ball or liberals can't just have a direct conversation about X. I mean, this guy, I mean, you know, you look at even I was having to go back at his blog posts where he, you know, will, you know, explain that his, you know, his his torture column is really an anti-torture column. You know, it's like you get to a point where it's like. Okay, in order to understand what Sam says, you need to, you know, there's there's like a secret, there's like a, 
you know, you have to heat, hit delete X, then there's a secret sentence that opens up to a YouTube link of an appearance from three years ago where he said possibly it could be, you know, it's just, and, and he, and he's done that quite a bit where, you know, even like the, um, and I write about it a lot in the book, you know, the kind of infamous, maybe we need to drop a nuke thought experiment, which is amazing because, you know, he's really convinced a lot of his kind of followers that the criticisms of him for that were just malicious and cynical and mean spirited. You know, it's almost to the point where you, you kind of think if you read the book that what he actually wrote was like, I would be fucking demented to say, <laughs> and then he wrote that paragraph, you know what I mean? You're like, Oh, okay. That would be really taking you out of context, but all he's doing and, and his later kind of addendums to that are so, I mean, they, you know, it's sort of like he, he initially wrote this, in a context where certainly elements in the Bush administration and the Bush administration as a whole were, you know, they were, there were plans. They were, you know, they were, they were talking about multi-front wars. They were opening up all sorts of kinetic activity, obviously in Afghanistan and Iraq. But I mean, if Iraq went quote unquote, well, I mean, I think the next move would have been Syria, you know, and they were eyeing Iran. And, you know, he writes this, ludicrous thing of which, you know, again, the only state it could even in real life, the only states it could even remotely begin to imply would actually be ostensive U.S. allies at the time, Pakistan and Saudi, uh, you know, I guess the Taliban, but the Taliban were already basically dislodged. And, you know, and then it's like, OK, are you really talking about Iran? But, you know, he, by the time he wrote his sort of addendum to it, it was almost like, you know, that that was just that's almost, you know, that was like a comic book fantasy almost, you know, like, yes, I guess, you know, if look, if Hitler came back and joined forces with bin Laden and they ran the entirety of the Middle East and were about to take over Hawaii, I mean, yeah, I guess there would be some pretty out there scenarios. I mean, I remember one of his other really hot takes was uh, that airports, we should be doing a full kind of uh, airport interrogations and surveillance of any passengers who look Muslim. Uh, and, you know, people saw this, like the response was, you know, what does that mean? Look Muslim, like you're going to pull Arabs out of line or you're going to, you know, like you're looking for a particular, uh, there's a lot of different kinds of Muslims. And I remember like, uh, you know, he went through this sort of litany of, you know, clarifications, basically, by the end of which he, his, his uh, statement was, I would include myself in that group. And like, no, of course you would not include yourself in that group. Like, don't, come on, dude. Like, what are you talking about? You, you did not say that with the intention of meaning, you know, people like me should be screened at airports. So I, this is like a pattern with him where he sort of makes these very incendiary statements and then has to, you know, spends like a, a huge amount of time like walking them back uh, in the face of criticism. And it is also really funny that, you know, that this is a guy, and I've said this a million times before, but it just, and again, not from the perspective that Islam is really the true nature of Islam is that it's of peace or whatever, but that the true nature of Islam is that it's an enormously complicated social organism that over a billion people participate in and has existed for a couple thousands of years, right? And that he could just say, Oh, you know, this kind of like ancient holy book in a language I don't read that has proliferated across every corner of the planet. If you just get yourself a decent translation of the Hadith 
and read a couple of Gallup polls, this is very easy to understand that <laughs> yeah, you can well, discount, you know, yeah. all scholastic, all, you know, let alone people's own experience to faith. But then on the other hand, reading like kind of like middle brow, like pop intellectual books in English and, you know, 2005 or whenever, like that's when the in interpretation becomes impossible, apparently, you know, unless it's favorable. It always struck me that kind of the deeper you get into this argument or the deeper Harris gets into this argument that uh, Islam is uniquely dangerous. And uh, it always struck me as sort of self-defeating. Uh, if your point, if your goal is to kind of pull people away from uh, kind of extremism, uh, then who who are you going to, you know, who are these people uh, who are drawn to sort of extremist views? Who are they going to listen to? Like, are they going to listen to Sam Harris explain their religion to them? Or are they going to listen to the moderates who Sam Harris, you know, kind of uh, discards out of hand? And I, I mean, I'm pretty sure the answer is uh, they're not going to listen to Sam Harris. I don't know if they're going to listen to the moderates uh, that he kind of uh, disclaims, but they're not going to listen to Sam Harris tell them what's wrong with with their faith because then he started doing some stuff with Majid Nawaz yeah, and then right. it became like no we are supporting the moderates but the moderates are either like you know I mean got to be careful what you say you know about Majid <laughs> but somebody that let's just say I don't I, I have never encountered anybody outside of a sort of uh, you know kind of you know online young man uh, who's interested in him. And I've, and I've talked to people who actually work specifically in the de-radicalization field. They don't think much of his work at all. And, and then you'd have people like, you know, yeah, basically, okay, our version of moderate Muslims we're going to support are, you know, a lot of, you know, they're basically, and again, I, my personal condolences, but it's just not, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. You grew up and your parents were kind of assholes about the faith. That's terrible, right? I, I, sure. But I don't think that this is like what this has to do with empowering forces in Pakistan or wherever who, you know, have a different view of Islam or, you know, are going to try to connect human rights and Islam. I mean, it's just, it, it's delusional. It's like, yeah, no, we're, we're supporting Islamic moderates now. And now we have, you know, uh, you know, some guy who grew up in Canada and now like works at some, you know, company and he's going to be on the podcast with me for three hours in LA. And we're going to talk about, you know, how trash Islam is. Like, oh, okay. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, ironically, it sounds to me a little bit like identity politics, frankly, but I wanted to switch gears and talk about Jordan Peterson now. I mean, Jordan Peterson is uh, I'm, I'm much less familiar with uh, with him than with Sam Harris, but he strikes me as being sort of uh, the gateway drug uh, in a sense uh, for people to get into this kind of uh, conservative universe of the IDW. Uh, universe um he's got his you know famous book 12 rules for life uh and as you say in your book most of the 12 rules are uh sort of innocuous they're like make your bed and if you see a cat in the street i think is one pet the cat uh you know really innocuous things but it's in the the couple of them that are not innocuous uh, that he gets into this sort of strident defense of traditional Western hierarchies or traditional hierarchies in general, I guess. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, it's it seems like uh, for his target audience, you're talking about a bunch of people whose basic kind of view of things and the reason that they're looking to Peterson for answers is that they're frustrated. They're they're frustrated with uh, their station in life, with with you know the the situation that they find themselves in, and they're looking for answers. And and I think, and you write this in the book, the, these people would be uh, receptive. I think, or some of them at least, would be receptive to uh, a material analysis analysis of why that is and what are the structural issues that have created this reality for you uh, but instead they kind of get swept up into to peterson uh, who is not doing that he's definitely not doing that uh, so talk about a little bit about that phenomenon yeah no i think that's exactly right and it's funny you know because because in writing the book and again, it's it's kind of I mean, I'm actually most excited about the conclusion chapter because I think, you know, hopefully that kind of cosmopolitan socialist case is 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 bigger. And I think is ultimately what I'm trying to do on some level in all the projects I do. But, you know, with the Harris chapter, I mean, I have, you know, a lot of contempt for him. And I think that there's just you know, I mean, th there's a lot that needs to be kind of clearly delineated and. I think ultimately, obviously, Harris's work is incredibly unimpressive, but you, you know, you have to, you have to give it a very close read. You have to see the ways in which he's trying to, you know, sort of create caveats and outs for himself. And, and there is a certain, but there's a certain like superficial rigor to it. And with Peterson, and it's, and I say this as somebody, especially for somebody on the left, I don't have, a, I don't have like an anti-spirituality allergy at all. So I don't have any problem with Peterson talking about religious texts or archetypal journeys or things. I think those things can actually be very interesting, but his work, I mean, his just, it's not like, you know, he's constantly freaking out about Marxism. He doesn't understand. I mean, and I don't mean like he's got a critique that I disagree with. I mean, like he has a debate with Slavoj Zizek, who's one of the most important scholars on the planet. And a seer, you know, and a Marxist, and he right. read it, you know, and he said, "I reread the Communist Manifesto." I mean, I, you know, that's just like <laughs> nuts, you know. It's, yeah. it's sort of like, you know, it's so. But I think what's most relevant about Peterson, you know, it isn't. I mean, his ideas are are sort of simple in the sense that he's kind of trying to mash up basically the idea that there are natural evolving hierarchies in nature. And then I think if I'm interpreting him correctly, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure I am. It's just with these guys, you know, you probably are never interpreting him correctly unless you agree with them. But that basically mythologies reflect kind of like natural truths, basically. And what we need to do is you can't go against the grain. You've got you to gotta work with the systems of hierarchy and evolution that are in place. And then you can kind of understand your role in them through understanding mythological narratives and stuff like that. And I think what though, by far what's most relevant about him is that he's speaking to an incredible alienation and hunger for meaning. So what's funny is I think a lot of people on the left got a lot of big kick out of kind of 
you know, because, yeah, look, I mean, and I've I've done it myself. I think there is something hysterical about a guy who's like Mr. You know, bring back traditional masculinity. who was like the personality profile of like a hysterical woman in the 50s sexist movie. Right. Like, yeah, of course. Like there's a huge amount of comedy there. But I also think that he is speaking to like, you know, saying he's wrong in a way is kind of in a in a very odd way. It's sort of like mirroring, you know, Harris's just incapacity to write about Islam. Like what like what does that even mean? Like who he's he's speaking to very deep issues of lack of of meaning, lack of purpose and, and, and alienation. And so my sort of two answers to him were on one hand, yeah, of course, you know, it's in some ways it's frankly as simple as if, if you know, if a young guy and let's be honest, it is, you know, mostly young guys. And that's not a value judgment. I mean, you know, that's an important constituency among many. So they're tooling around on the Internet and their interpretation of, you know, what is presented to them as left is just sort of endless people, you know, I don't know, hectoring them because they like video games or something. And then Jordan Peterson can tell them that, you know, holding off, jerking off and cleaning their room a little bit is actually heroic. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious and what's going to be more appealing, right? <laughs> and so I think that, uh, you know, I'm not actually, I don't know that Peterson says the jerk off part. I just wanted to make it funnier. But I think that if you, but then if you go and you say, and I, and I could tell this, you know, anecdotally, I'm, you know, of certainly people being like, hey, and then I kind of thought the left was just sort of like, people who did listicles about why, you know, Seinfeld was bad. And then at least it seemed like IDW and right wing guys were talking about science and other stuff. And then I discovered somebody like you and all of a sudden you were talking about why I'm buried in student debt and can't get a job. <laughs> yes, that was a lot more compelling and interesting to me. And then I started to realize the IDW guys were, you know, basically a bunch of wankers. But uh, and then I also would actually couple it with and and maybe this does actually relate to my kind of tolerance of religion. I, I, I think you can't, I don't want the left to be the ones that say that your interest in self-development or psychology or whatever else is all bullshit. Um, I think those are really important stuff for a lot of people. And uh, instead of saying it's dumb or it's not scientific or it doesn't make any sense or whatever, I think we should just be, either pushing people who write about similar themes but are much more interesting and compelling, like someone like James Hillman, or even just at the very least, just saying that that's, you know, it's valid. It's, it's an absolutely valid enterprise to want to figure out your own life and your role in the world. And then as far as these big picture systems go, we've got a critique that makes a lot more sense. And, you know, the last thing I'd say, the other big contradiction in Peterson and this is the kind of classic kind of traditionalist conservative contradiction, which is that if you want to restore or have some sense of kind of traditional life where people play kind of assigned social roles and live in the same place or whatever, how are you going to support basically unfettered capitalism and hope to maintain those things? And that's just a fool's errand, you know. I sort of have my own goodwill hunting moment about Peterson because it, it seems to me that if you are in his target audience, uh, you're one of these people who is wondering why the world is this way, why is my life this way, what what is the you know what's the answer, uh, why do I have debt, why am I you know what what happened here. Uh, you're going to be either any answer that you get that tells you it's not your fault. 
uh, is going to be one that uh, you find appealing and most likely psychologically speaking. And, you know, you have an answer on the left. And I, I one of the things that I thought was so valuable about the Bernie Sanders campaign was uh, this message that uh, it's not your fault. You're not a bad person because you're in debt uh, or because you're struggling. Uh, you're not alone either. There are a lot of people going through the same things because we have systemic problems in this society that we have to address uh, that are causing these things to happen for a large number of people. Uh, uh, you contrast that with uh, Jordan Peterson's message, which is uh, it's not your fault. It's the social justice warriors who are making you use other pronouns, like the, the you know, pronouns that you wouldn't normally want to use. And that's the reason why you're in this situation. Um, you know, they're both kind of uh answers i guess uh that if you're sort of scrambling around looking for a, a reason why you're in your situation uh peterson's answer is garbage and it doesn't have anything to do with reality uh but it, it's there and i think that some of some of the people who gravitate to that message could be attracted to to the other one to the the message that uh no the the real thing that's happening here is we've got uh some serious deep issues that need to be addressed uh, I wonder, you know, the other thing I wanted to, to, to comment on, I get you to comment on, uh, about Peterson is this sort of, this sense of unearned authority that he seems to have. Um, you know, you write in the book, for example, his coming out, uh, you know, big public kind of uh, uh, coming out party was uh, over a Canadian trans rights bill uh, that he clearly hadn't actually read. Like he, he uh, you know, announced to everybody i'm not gonna say the pronouns that they forced me to say like it was this big stand against something that was some language that was in this bill that isn't there i mean it's not about pronouns the bill is just about anti-discrimination um but you know he doesn't know what he's talking about here and yet he feels uh compelled and qualified to comment on it it's just like uh the debate with zizek where he hasn't done any of the reading he doesn't understand marxism but he feels qualified to debate marxism and I wonder if you could comment on this sort of uh, sense of, you know, a guy who, who doesn't do the homework, but still feels like he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And the, I mean, the kind of extraordinary self-dramatization and, you know, you know, look, I, I, I went into that in the book and, you know, look, there is there is a path and a trajectory uh, you know, I guess in how that's written, where maybe at some point you pay a fine or something. But I mean, he he wanted to feel it. Might, it seemed like he I mean, it, this was actually super Peterson, because on one hand, it was a great cynical play. And he's the reason. And that whole, you know, him having a big meltdown about people's pronouns is, you know, the reason we know who he is. But then on the other hand, it was like this what are we talking about? I mean, were you, are you like on the archipelago now, you know, are you some type of like Soviet dissident? Because, you, you, <laughs> you, you know, there, there's yeah, always like, a lot of like, and, and it's funny because again, you do find where, cause you know, I have a receptivity, you know, I think I've been really clear of like, I think that questions of civil rights and equity are just completely non-negotiable and that even if you know even if we're in a big minority there's certain 
policy questions that are big red lines and that just is what it is and then on the other hand i you know i'm just sort of kind of over culture war politics uh in general and you know not as a question of policy and rights but just in the sort of like revolving cycle of kind of controversy and and just the way these games are constantly played and and one of the things that just so struck me about peterson is just like i remember him getting questioned by you know, some very, very centrist figure uh, at some forum basically saying like and, and giving him like a lot of ground, which I wouldn't give him. But it was very interesting. He's just kind of like, you know, I'm a professor and, you know, sometimes I think kids come in and they're, you know, giving me some like pro down I've never heard of. And honestly, I don't take it that seriously. And I think it's kind of narcissistic. And then other times, undoubtedly. Uh, they are expressing a very clear identity that I have to respect. And my default is, who gives a fuck? I'll just say <laughs> the preferred pronoun and get on with it. Essentially, like, what is the need for the melodrama? Right. And right. his answer is just, I mean, it's like, one, not to kind of psychobabble him, but I mean, I would say as somebody who kind of has some lines about like, you know, going towards what you're afraid of and, you know, maybe at times, you know, can kind of sort of talk about, you know, oh, like the reason you have this kind of left position is because of this various, you know, kind of psychological, uh, you know, disorder or concern or whatever. And, I, and I'm willing to say, sure, maybe that's true. And I got to tell you, dude, like whatever you got going on with gender and people that are trans, you got to go towards it and not run away from it. <laughs> this isn't you know and again it was so good that it was put frankly by somebody who was not you know coming at him in like a whole way it was just kind of like yeah of course you know sure there's of course there's some element of like you know college students are college students dude but like why is this like a global conversation <laughs> There is a, a lively cast of characters in the IDW. As I said earlier, there's a there's a third section of the book that's about Ben Shapiro, who strikes me as kind of uh, the guy who came along later and said, "Oh, I'm I'm an intellectual. I'm part of this movement too. Pick me, pick me." Um, and and you know he's in there. You talk about him. You talk about some of the other characters, kind of uh, you know in in less detail, the Weinstein brothers and uh, Dave Rubin, who's uh, a whole uh, comedic act on his own uh, and uh, Joe Rogan who I think you rightly kind of set uh, apart from uh, the IDW although he is sort of adjacent uh, to it sort of can I just end? say real quick the reason yeah, that, sure. that I make the distinction with Rogan is not because I haven't criticized things Rogan said or have disagreements with him or whatever and I, and I actually think honestly there's just like a I do think that it is crazy that pretty much across the board, we're in a culture now where, you know, just because you have a disagreement with somebody uh, or even go after them on something specific does not mean that you can't still have rapport with them and, and you know, work with them on other things. Like, I, I do honestly think having a totally zero sum attitude about those things is, is pretty ridiculous. But I. There's a very practical reason with Rogan. I mean, one is obviously that Rogan is, you know, look, he's super talented, uh, you know, and it, it, I, I actually, it's funny, I haven't listened to this show in a long time. I used to listen to it, and it's a good show. But I think he's 
he's somebody that needs to be dealt with on the terms of like he literally is a new type of kind of center, for lack of a better word. Like if you want to know what, uh, you know, like all of this this terminology that, you know, idiots who write for like the Times or whatever still use about like, you know, the center and and and, uh, you know, what people are really thinking outside of the extremes and all this stuff. I mean, I don't think they're thinking what Morning Joe or Thomas Friedman or whatever is, is thinking unless they're, you know, extremely affluent, essentially. But I do think Rogan, I think that his particular kind of mashup really does represent millions of people. And I think there's some really good things about that. I think it goes back to the fact that he was down to vote for Bernie. And obviously there's some things that I, you know, totally disagree with about that. But I just I think even as a lot of these other characters can either be just understood to be basically fully right wing or what they're speaking to could be addressed in a much better way. I just think Rogan is, you know, it's like he's on the land, he's in the landscape and he represents something. It's like Oprah, you know, like, I guess, you know, sure. Critique Oprah, have a conversation about Oprah, but Oprah ain't going anywhere and she represents something and that has to be worked around. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the distinction I, I draw about Rogan. I think he's representative of a, a, a majority of people who don't marinate themselves in politics 24 hours a day. Um, maybe they vote sometimes. Maybe they don't vote at all. Uh, some of the views they hold are uh, deplorable, reprehensible, uh, and that's fine. We should say that when it's true. Uh, but in a lot of other areas, because they're not, they're not marinating in this stuff all the time, they're receptive to some messages. And I think you need to approach... Uh, somebody like Rogan as a window into that uh, very large group of people who otherwise you seem to be having a hard time reaching uh, to see what, you know, what they are, you know, what, what appeals to them as, for example, uh, Sanders' message seemed to appeal to him. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I also think like it is where some of this stuff about how you sell and position things really can pay a lot of dividends. Uh, because I, I think because most people are not politically oriented, they're all over the place. They have all of these countervailing tendencies. And, you know, I, you know, if you sit down with, and, and he, he is just such a perfect distillation of that because you can see him, you know, there's a million, and he loves to dine on all of the stupid college stuff. And I say stupid in the broadest sense, like it's a, stupid thing to be obsessed with and a lot of the stuff that they pull up is stupid (laughs) you know what i'm saying like and and he and he just you know but then but this is not a guy who's going to say he like supports open borders and whatever you know or some kind of like buzzword that has nothing to do with what's happening right now but on the other hand uh, I've seen him actually say, like, you know, react really viscerally to the family separation stuff. Like, this is disgusting. This is immoral. And, you know, I, I yeah, I agree with you. I just think that, that you got to get much more comfortable with the fact that most people just don't process politics like this. And And I think there is actually a fair amount of room for... Basically, if you make the case about so-called social issues, it's like people should have the rights, civil rights, should be treated well and respectfully. 
I think there's actually a fair amount of buy-in and I think there's like some certainly increasing buy-in for like, you know, look, this isn't saying that you don't work hard, Joe, and you don't have your own business and that's fucking rad and whatever. But hey, like guys doing, you know, digging quarries should get paid a living wage, right? And don't you think it's kind of fucked up that in such a rich country, everybody doesn't have health care? So much of this stuff is I do think if you're willing to not come with some like maximalist woke scold kind of position or like demand that somebody, you know, you know, I don't know, like use like a fucking Soviet flag avatar. Yeah, I think you can persuade people on this stuff. I do. So I thought we'd end, I mean, with a discussion of, of uh, the conclusion of your book, which obviously, you know, people uh, should pick up to, to you know, really get uh, the full argument here. But, um, you know, you conclude with, you know, kind of talking about how the, the left can better engage uh, with the arguments of the IDW and with the, the, the audience to which the IDW appeals. And I'm wondering, you know, if there's like, uh, one or two things that you can tell people is they're kind of online or uh, wherever and they encounter Jordan Peterson or they encounter Sam Harris or they encounter uh, the audience of those uh, of those guys like you know how how can can you productively kind of in, engage in in uh, sort of interacting with that that group yeah I mean I think it depends probably what angle they're coming from Um because there are some kind of different doors, but I think uh, I'm really I'm really passionate in the book about the idea that there is space for kind of universal values and universal aspirations, but that they come from global sources. Uh, I think that's an interesting way to kind of answering the sort of either kind of bullshit Western chauvinist stuff that you get from this. Or, you know, kind of characters of complete relativism. Uh, I think certainly when it comes to the kind of, you know, Peterson thing or just the kind of general interest in looking at ideas, a word that Dave Rubin has totally ruined, I think that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of room to say, you know, basically that like what these guys are selling is that there's this really closed, hypersensitive intellectual culture. And I think you can say, yes, there, you know, to some degree, that's true. But what these guys are doing is they're just creating another Waldorf garden that basically just propagates systems that are very damaging to you unless you're rich you know, in the, in the, in the big picture sense. Right. And we're interested in a project that actually really does, um, you know, it's a, it's a process of addition, not subtraction. So I think it's kind of like the answer being yes. In fact, there are, you know, I mean, look, we're talking about a group that promotes the bell curve, you know, and obviously we're going to vigorously critique all of this, garbage but the sort of path that we critique it is not going to be a passive just like oh that's bad i can't believe you'd say that but oh that's an interesting game you're playing here and here is you know four different much more interesting compelling authors or historical examples which would not only debunk the bullshit you're peddling 
but actually start opening up like much more compelling answers to, to conversations. You know, I mean, I quote Adolf Reed all the time and I love having him on my show and he's a big influence on me, but it's like just even just the notion of the perspective of, of course, America is a racist society and of course capitalism is entwined with it. And then, you know, rejecting the, you know, various, you know, garbage right-wing explanations of, you know, that try to sort of formalize racism, either like the bell curve does or, uh, or, or, you know, cultural explanations or all this other right-wing garbage. Uh, but then on the other hand, doesn't just say like, oh, well, the, you know, the contrast is racism is one thing. It's exactly the same thing in the 1600s that it is in 2020. There's no historical contingencies. There's no differences in terms of class and race and geography inside different racial communities. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, not as some type of like PC statement, but literally race is bullshit. Obviously, it's a real thing because of how it functions in the world. But ultimately, like we can't reify this as actual real categories because they're not. And, you know, this anti-essentialist position is. Again, I mean, obviously I have bias because I, I think it's true, but, you know, you bring that into a conversation and for people who are intellectually inquisitive, it's like, whoa, you're telling me that I have, you know, first of all, not sort of pick between one of two sides in this kind of like very narrow played out cultural debate, but I actually have to read and think about more. Now, I will say this, there's, there's definitely people who clearly are drawn to these guys who do not want to read and think about more. And, you know, they'll just say like, well, that just sounds like, you know, that's just more PC Marxism. But for the ones who were kind of drawn, um, you know, by the, you know, I, I think it obviously doesn't head anywhere, but, you know, who took seriously the idea that we're going to like look at big picture stuff and really try to figure shit out. I think when you do take them towards the Adolf Reeds of the world, they're like, oh, OK, well, here it is. This is. This is like actual intellectual work. So, I mean, you know, in some ways the book is, uh, you know, has this cosmopolitan socialist framework that I think is useful and I want people to check out. And some of the rest of it is just, you know, it's almost like an alternative bibliography of, you know, people that are just a hell of a lot more interesting to read and engage with, uh, you know, across a variety of these areas. You know, even like a guy like, like Bob Wright, I mean, I have disagreements with him, uh, but I mean, there, there's somebody who writes about the interplay between evolutionary biology and, and how societies form and human morals and stuff like that. And his writing on religion, I, I mean, to me, it's a little bit too root. I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily root it as much in the natural sciences as he does, but I mean, it's brilliant, you know, like the battle for God and his, his whole thing with Sam Harris is like, yeah, why, you know, why does the Quran have sections that are these incredible kind of testaments to universal compassion and equity? And then other times are very chauvinistic. It's like, oh, well, shockingly enough, Mohammed was either like striking a peace deal or going to war. Oh, OK. <laughs> kind of makes sense that the text would yeah, read differently, right? Right. You know, right. and so, you know, even so even in that regard, like even someone like Robert Wright, who I have a lot of respect for and is very interesting and, you know, have different politics for then or whatever. But, you know, there's somebody who writes from a perspective of natural science and, and, and so on, who has a infinitely more complex and dynamic, uh, you know, and satisfying read of international relations and religion than any of these guys. 
you know, again, this is just another really superficial tactic, but I've seen it like anecdotally, like, you know, actually hierarchies exist in nature, you know, some kind of highfalutin, dumb, like dorm room conservative comment, but then hierarchies are bad and they're socially constructed. Let's get rid of them versus like, wait a second, what are we talking about here? Right? Like, I don't want everybody, I want, you know, I don't want any, every team in the NBA to like win a playoff. I don't want every, uh, you know, I don't want everybody to get a uh, NFL, you know, a Super Bowl ring. I want competition. Okay. I want competition in sports. Okay. Is that yeah, I think it's, a I mean, one-to-one I, analogy with you need to compete to get health care or incidentally, you know, full civil rights under the law. Like, let, let's actually start to have some precision here before we go right. from, you know, right. lobsters fight each other. So therefore that means yada, yada, yada. Like we're, we're getting <laughs> silly. And, I, and in a way, like immediately going to like a kind of counter grand moralistic narrative, just, you know, it's like, like if somebody says something like that to me, like hierarchies exist in nature and therefore you know, messing with them is innately totalitarian or something. I go, okay, like, I don't know what, like, what are we talking about here? Like, okay, you're, you know, you're five, seven. So does that mean that someone who's six, three should be able to beat the shit out of you? Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what you mean. Like, what are we talking about here? You know, <laughs> like, because a lot of this stuff is just fucking sloganeering that wouldn't survive an interrogation on the most basic premises of building like a modern society. And then by the way, if you really want to go and, you know, go down the, you know, path towards ethno nationalism or whatever else, then, you know, look, that's fucking terrible, but that's also very clarifying too. That's like, Oh, okay. But then we see what you're doing here and you're not doing some type of like, you know, common sense centrism and talking hard truths you've bought into you know, an extremely dangerous and wacky ideology. And that obviously has to do with, you know, where basically like your emotional disturbances are at, essentially. Again, I would encourage everybody to pick up the book, uh, check it out, read more about Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, read about Ben Shapiro, read about all these guys and uh, how you can uh, get engaged with with the things that they're saying and uh, counter them in a hopefully more effective way. Uh, Michael Brooks, again, uh, the book is Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. Uh, and if you guys are, aren't checking out the Michael Brooks show, if you're not checking out the Majority Report, if you're not checking out Weekends uh, at Jacobin, you should definitely be doing that and pick up the book. It's available for pre-order now. I'll put a link in the show description, uh, and it will be uh, out on April 24th. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk with us. Thanks a million, man. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, much appreciated as always. Once again, I want to thank Michael Brooks for coming on the show and speaking with us about his new book, Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. Uh, please check it out. I'll have a link in the show description. Check out the Michael Brooks show. Check out Majority Report with Sam Cedar. Check out Weekends at Jacobin, all the things that Michael's doing. Uh, and to all of you, please stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and thank you for listening. Uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon.